This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comment. Don't forget to subscribe to be notified when new episodes drop. Let's be more like Europe. They're doing things so much better than in Canada and the United States. They have got it all figured out. Have you ever heard that refrain before? Yeah, I'm sure you have many times. And yet our guest today says, no way, time out, hard pass on that one. David Harsani is a senior writer at National Review a contributor to the New York Post, and an author of multiple books, including his latest, get a load of this title, Eurotrash, Why America Must Reject the Failed Ideas of a Dying Continent. David Harsani joins us now. Hey, David, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to chat with you. How are things? Things are going pretty well. Yourself? Things are doing all right here, and I'm, I'm watching what's going on in the U.S. with some great interest. I'd like to get your thoughts on, on a couple things before uh, we talk about your new book that's out. Particularly, I, I guess, what's going on with these, I can't really call them midterms, but you had some elections in Virginia where it flipped Democrat to Republican, and then some stuff going on in New Jersey where, uh, I guess, the New Jersey Democrat governor did get reelected, but a razor-slim margin, uh, not what people thought, and then a couple state Senate seats flipped. So, I guess I'm hearing from some Republicans, oh, this is the beginning of some great surge, some wave, but, you know, I don't know if there should be more cautiousness uh, required on that. What's your read of, 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 you know, the state of the nation right now? Well, I would, I would say that typically, you know, with first term presidents see some blowback in the first midterm, obviously. This wasn't a midterm, but in essence, we can treat it the same. Um, but I, I do think something else is going on. Obviously, you have some anxieties about the economy because of inflation and other other reasons but in virginia specifically you have basically the manifestation i guess of the fight over schools in a way over masking over how race uh, issues are taught in schools virginia was a red state for a long time but it turned i would say it's a turn blue basically a few elections ago and um to see it flip i think should be concerning for democrats Help me out here with the school stuff. Critical race theory. I understand that was a big issue. How would you define that that concept? What is critical race theory? How is it being played out? And, and what were the concerns that parents had? 
Well, I should say there's been a, there's an intellectual, uh, I call it an argument or curriculum around critical race theory. And it does exist in Virginia schools, but it wasn't taught, there wasn't a widespread teaching of it, though there certainly was some, uh, you know, some, some districts that wanted to do that. I think it's become a shorthand for the sorts of, uh, what would you call it, identitarian kind of kind of lessons that people are, that kids are taught in schools about race, you know, about, about, how can I say, you know, that how white, white people are all collectively guilty for, for these things or sort of long-term, long-term racial problems in the country, whatever it is. I mean, I think there's a lot of anxiety again by parents, but how it's taught and it's sort of kind of tied into the mask wearing and things weirdly like, you know, and, and, and being away from school and I think school choice issues. So I think that 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 is what spurred a lot of anger generally about schools. But I just quickly want to say on top of that, when these issues come up, rather than dealing with them in, in, in by debunking what was being said, you had Terry McAuliffe and others saying things like, you know, parents shouldn't really have a say in curriculums, things like that, which should seem, I think, to many voters to be just elitist and, and uh, disconnected from reality. I would say up here in Canada, there's a lot more parental disconnect from having a say in the curriculum, what's going on in the schools. In the U.S., is it is it just Republicans who are pushing to more be involved in the nitty gritty of the education system? Or, or is it across the board? Is it a broader sort of American parental culture thing? I think it's an American parental culture thing. Again, I'm not even sure how Canadian school systems run, but here, you know, there are local systems. There's no national uh, curriculum really I mean, yeah same here yeah so we have local communities running their schools and, and uh, you know so, so parents have perhaps more involvement there they have more access to the people who are who are, who are running schools so it's i think it's always been that way i mean the most american thing to do is go down and yell at the school board members but of course <laughs> the thing is uh yeah i've I mean, seen those viral is, videos they're a hoot <laughs> yeah Exactly. But, you know, the thing is, not every parent can get what they want, which is why, you know, this big school choice movement. And I think that that has actually um, benefited, I guess, from from what happened last year and this year with school closures and so on. One of the other things I find really interesting, you know, here in Canada, like like I guess everywhere, uh, pro-lockdown, anti-lockdown has been rather politicized and along some partisan lines. But at the same time, there's been more dynamic things happening in the U.S. I remember, I guess a year ago, uh, New York schools were closed throughout uh, the various boroughs. And then in, I want to say the Bronx, a, a lot of parents, mostly moms, working class moms, uh, who were not all white, not all Republican, they took to the streets and they demanded Bill de Blasio reopen the schools, and he did. And I was like, whoa. And we had problems here in Ontario, and I was always pushing, you know, we got to reopen the schools, and we didn't, and so forth. But it seems like there was a lot of activism going on around COVID stuff all throughout the U.S., and even among people who are maybe traditionally Democratic voters. Absolutely. The big swing in Virginia, for instance, happened in counties that had turned Democrat um, in northern Virginia, where you have a lot of people moving out from the D.C. area and coming over from Maryland. So these are suburban families or moms or voters who who were Democrats, basically, last election. Maybe they were turned off by Donald Trump, whatever it was. I think that the school issue should change them back. They're not as ideological as a lot of maybe deep urban vote, you know, voters or white voters, probably. As far as minority voters, there's always been some kind of, uh, I wouldn't say it's predominant position, but there's always been much more uh, openness and sympathetic ear for 
uh, having money follow kids and giving them more choices because of the failing schools. So in inner cities quite often. So it is far more complicated than just Republican and Democrat on that issue. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating stuff. Absolutely. First of all, I just got to ask you the Donald Trump question. I know Joe Biden not doing so great right now. Wasn't much of a honeymoon period or pretty much no honeymoon period for Biden. Polling numbers not looking great. We see the images of what's happening at the border, China threatening conflicts over Taiwan. Is Donald Trump going to make a comeback? Uh, it's hard to say because he doesn't act in ways that I, I guess I would consider rational. So I don't know mm. what he's going to do um, right now. I'm sure he's uh, he's looking at poll numbers and probably feeling decent about his chances. And I, I don't know what would happen, obviously, um, but it's 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 a complicated situation. I think he takes credit. I, I've noticed some pushback from the from people who actually like him in the sense that he he seems to take credit for any conservative or Republican victory where he has very little to do with it, for instance, in Virginia. So I don't know. I think his star is fading a bit with even with his hardcore fans, but uh, it's yet to be seen what he does. He promises to make an announcement soon, I I think it was. So we'll see. Uh, Lots of people interested in what Florida Governor Ron DeSantos has been doing or or where he hopes to go with his political career. What are some other figures you think uh, would either say, yes, I want to run, even if Trump says he is running, or at least those who, if Trump says, no, I'm standing down, uh, they would surge to the fore? Who who would be the other big names? Well, DeSantis brings together... uh, but both the Trump wing, I think, in the more, you know, old school movement conservative wing in a way that probably no other candidate does. I know Chris Christie looks like maybe he would run. I don't really see that. Uh, uh, Nikki Haley, former governor of uh, South Carolina, who's more of a, uh, you know, a uh, traditional Republican <clears throat> in the George W. Bush mold, I guess, um, would probably run. I uh, can't really think who else is out there. Well, isn't that kind of telling, though? It's not really, there's no, like, wow factor. Well, I guess besides DeSantos, people found what he did uh, with the COVID rules. Either Well, a lot of people were abhorred by it, depending on their views, and other people found this is the one person in, like, the world, or at least in the Western world or North America, standing up for freedom and and sort of sane policy so aggressively. So I guess if anybody has the sort of conviction politician rallying cry, maybe it's him. Well, there'll probably be a ton of candidates if Trump doesn't run in the sense that, uh, you know, you'll have the anti-Trump candidates, maybe, you know, and then you'll have the Trump, the more Trumpy candidate, the MAGA candidate, and then DeSantis, who is kind of has a Trump quality to him, but he is, he's actually quite sharp in, in debates and things of that nature in, the, in a way that Donald Trump wasn't really. So um, I, I think if I had to pick anyone as the leading candidate for Republicans, it'd be DeSantis for sure. He's also he's also governor of a big state and uh, that's quite important in, in any any election. So. Right, right. You know, when you were talking about the COVID stuff, parents doing activism, I was like, oh, man, we got to copy some of the ideas they're doing in the U.S. up here in Canada. Uh, but the the sort of point of your new book, the thrust of your new book, Eurotrash, is that there's a lot of people saying, well, the place you got to be taking your cues from is from Europe and from European countries. Eurotrash, why America must reject the failed ideas of a dying continent. I, I see that you did not choose to uh, uh, approach that headline or subtitle by, <laughs> by by going in halves there. Strong stuff. Eurotrash, what's, you're really saying, uh-uh, like watch out. These guys do not actually have their act together. 
Well, um, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. And just broadly speaking, I noticed um, over the past, going back in history, obviously, there's always been elites in this country and the United States have always looked towards Europe for, for guidance. You know, they think Europeans are more sophisticated. Typically, that was in the cultural realm. You saw a lot of that. But I noticed over the, over the past maybe 10 years, you have not just um, pundits and academics, but politicians saying, hey, Europe's doing this or that better. And that used to not be the case. You'd never have an American you know, politician talking about Europe in that way. Um, so, but they were saying a lot of things I thought needed debunking. So there's two, my book is about two, on two different planes, I guess. One is you know, policy ideas and arguments that should be debunked, but also cultural aspects of American society that were just different than mm. Europeans in many ways. It just wouldn't work here. Yeah, well, well, let's talk. Let's talk about the cultural stuff first, because I know we're supposed to, or at least this is how in Canada we're taught to think about it. We always have the kind of we're supposed to. I don't want to say look down on the U.S., but because we're the smaller power and we always rely on you guys for military stuff, we always have to find ways. We're kind of insecure about it, so we have to make these sort of snippy comments and so on. And, and part of that is talking about Europe as being much more. Much more refined sensibility, much more cultured, much more cosmopolitan. And that's supposed to be one of the guiding lights as to why we should look to Europe more, at least in that regard. How do you respond uh, to sort of that narrative? Well, I, I would say that if you go, uh, you know, a few miles outside of Paris, Berlin or other countries and you see these sprawling, you know, suburbs of, you know, that are filled with poverty and uh, lack of assimilation and, hmm. you know, generational unemployment and things like that. I, I don't find that at all refined or sophisticated. Um, but I would say this on a cultural level, I, I understand why people look at Americans, think of them as slack-jawed yokels with guns and, and all of that. Um, but you guys say it in a bad way, which is what I don't understand. I mean, I think that <laughs> Americans are far more, uh, uh, they're open to risk. They're open to taking chances. They have a certain kind of cultural sensibility about wherein they weigh safety and, uh, you know, and, and, and meritocracy and things like that. And they just look at the world in a very different way than Europeans do for, I'm sure Canada, no expert on Canada, obviously, but obviously you have Western Canadians or, or, or different than, you know, people from Quebec, et cetera. So uh, the, these are all generalities, but in, but, but in general, I think Americans are far more open to taking risks to living their lives in ways that Europeans would not be because of, you know, because of long held cultural and, eth you know, eth ethnic, traditions, etc. But uh, I think that that drives the differences in policy as well. Well, yeah, when it comes to innovation, is it not fair to say, and I don't have any sort of charts or numbers in front of me, that that we're getting far more innovation in terms of, you know, medical technology, uh, you know, cutting technology in this sector or that sector from American institutes more so than we are from European institutes? Oh, yes. I mean, the top 30 tech companies in the world right now, only one is from in Europe, which is Spotify. The rest are all, almost all American and right. Chinese companies and Japanese companies. There is when it comes to technological innovation, the United States leads. I think in 2020, every single Nobel Prize winner was either an American or a team with an American on it. Huh. A lot of the tech companies I just mentioned have first and second generation immigrants who come here um, uh, who came here and came up with these ideas that made them tons of money, right? And But even on lower levels, like doctors, there's a movement from east to west. So you have, you know, Hungarians or Polish, you know, innovators, or they move to England, Germany, and English and Germans and French move to, to, to the United States to do things, and also from Asia. 
And yeah, I mean, I have many statistics in the book to show that as when it comes to innovations, medical innovations, uh, pharmaceutical innovations, and the United without the you know the United States leads in almost all those areas. And, and you know, it's funny when when people talk about working in Europe, one of the things, all the things they talk about. I guess are things that are not so productivity enhancing. You know, I, 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 it's a routine thing to hear someone go, you know what, we should do what they do in Europe and we should have the siesta. So, you know, you have lunch and then you go to bed for three hours or whatnot. And I'm like, that's kind of like the time when like deals are made, is it not? That's kind of like when stuff is going to happen there and so forth. So I totally get that they're, they're more relaxed in many ways. And the vacation weeks, I think, in the workplace that they accrue are perhaps uh, more so than here. And I think they like don't take their fo- cell phones with them, or at least they delink them from work. So they're not doing the work emails all the time when, when they're out on vacation, which sometimes, you know, I wish I could do. But you know, there's like a good side and then a bad side to that kind of approach. Right. Well, let me give you a statistic. I don't have the exact numbers, but they're basically right. Is that when you ask a European in polls, uh, would they prefer to have a, a job for life or would they rather be their own boss and take some risk? Hmm. Like when you ask Americans this, over 80% want to be their own boss. <clears throat> and in, in Europe, it's like more like 20 something percent. Huh. You have... Uh, yeah, the, there's always a story in the Atlantic here or some Europhile magazine where they're talking about, like, can you believe how many, look at all these hours Americans work and how terrible it is. But actually Americans get meaning from work and they like to work and most like their jobs and like what they're doing. Uh, the idea that Americans don't like to work or, or, or work makes them unhappy is simply untrue. It's very hard to quantify happiness, of course. What are you going to ask someone if you're happy, you know, I, you know, Scandinavian person will almost always say yes, while other t- an Irish person will always always say no. But, you know, um, it's clear that these are choices that we get to make. You want to take siesta, you can, but you're just not going to be as successful. Now, you can do that if you like here. In France, for instance, that these the, the, there were regulations telling, you know, bosses they can't call you on a weekend, etc. So that's, I think, the difference. Yeah, and I know they also have a lot of, I don't know what you call them, like sclerotic rules around hiring and firing, a lot of challenges where if you hire an employee, I mean, yeah, we all have our HR and employment laws, you know, all across the Western world, but some of the ones in places like France are just really, really restrictive for the employer. Oh, yeah. And it's difficult to, yeah, so it's obviously it's difficult to fire people. You see that here sometimes in union shops where you know, it's hard to fire someone who's put a lot of time in. And yeah, listen, I understand the, you know, why people do that and how we want to protect workers and things like that. But it also inhibits movement uh, in, 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 in Americans move around from job to job far more than Europeans do. And, uh, you know, and in the end, I mean, I, you know, if you care, if wealth matters and we start, you know, we start thinking about per capita wealth, the United States is way above Europe. I have the stat kind of blew my mind, but in Britain, Britain was a state in the United States that per capita income on average would be less than the second poorest in the state in the, in the union. It would be. Wow. I've never heard that before. That's interesting. Most European countries are in the bottom third. Only ones that perform well above are like Luxembourg, not above, above other European countries are are city states like Luxembourg and Monaco, Luxembourg and Monaco. So so on that note, would you say that Brexit uh, was the UK, like, are they further isolating themselves and going down this road in a negative way? Or were they like putting up the firewall and they're saying, you know what, we're, we're done with all of this stuff, the, the failed ideas, uh, we're doing it the American way more. Like what, what's this going to result in for them? 
I think the British have always were a tough fit for for uh, the European Union. When when Churchill actually spoke about a, a European state, not like you know a super European state, and even then he didn't mention that the British would be part of it. They never took on the currency. The French initially didn't even want them to participate. They're far. They've always been far more. Uh, capitalistic, I guess, or free market oriented and less. Now, don't get me wrong, we have tons of bureaucracy and problems there, but they've always been a tough fit. Um, and I think that a lot of uh, people in Britain just got sick of the, the the regulatory regime of the European Union in their everyday lives when it comes to light bulbs or the foods they eat, things like that. So I think it was just kind of a, <laughs> there were a bunch of microaggressions that you know made them mad. But um, in, in general, I just never, I don't think that was much of a fit and they didn't really need it. Will they be more isolated? I doubt it because they'll just probably make their own economic agreements with the European Union and other countries. So I, I just don't think much will change for them. We have to take a short break, but we'll be back in just a moment after this message. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. David, I want to return to the subtitle, uh, Why America Must Reject the Failed Ideas of a Dying Continent. We, we haven't spoken yet about what is it about Europe that is dying? Well, it's literally dying in the sense that it's very old and people don't have children. So Germany, I believe now is the second oldest uh, industrialized nation after Japan. Um, but, you know, Catholic countries especially are having very few children in Italy I would say traditionally Catholic countries like Italy, um, Spain, et cetera. So, you, you know, you have a, a continent that's actually dying. So to make up for that, they're la- they allowed in a huge number of immigrants in a very short span. And uh, what they don't do well in Europe, despite what people here may think, is assimilate newcomers. Or, you know, they, they're not tolerant in the way that Americans are. Now, I that's not to say we're perfect or that everyone here is welcoming of all immigrants, but it, it is clear throughout history that we are much better at assimilating newcomers than others. I live in the Washington, D.C. area, and I have neighbors from all over the world living here. Some of them would probably be killing each other in other situations, and mm. they just send their kids to the same schools. I don't think we here as Americans uh, understand what a, what a miracle that is in some ways it just rarely happens i mean obviously it happens in canada and australia you know but in in in, in europe countries have a difficult time even in, uh, assimilating a single ethnic minority into their country and it's because of structural things you know long-term histories things like that but it's also because of the system doesn't um ex- there are no expectations for these people i think to embrace the liberalism of those nations and, and become really active citizens there yeah, they seem to have a lot more problems with extremism in Europe than, than thankfully we have in Canada and I guess in the United States. And one wonders to what degree would that be addressed if they were able uh, to have a society that integrates more? Right. I mean, Muslim Americans are incredibly successful. They have uh, on per capita or per, per family basis make over 100000 dollars a year, which is very one of the highest and and are generally secular and assimilated. It's not to say there is never any kind of extremism, but it's rare. Whereas in, say, France or even in parts of uh, England and London, 
you know, you have entire neighborhoods that are compartmentalized and they have, you know, they, they have not embraced the liberalism of that nation because, because I think partly because of the economic reasons where they're not, you know, there's, like I said, generational unemployment and all these sorts of things. But also I think they're looking, you know, when people look for meaning in their lives, no one, you know, they, they find it in faith and um, without any kind of, can I say, competing idealism of, that you might find in your nation state or whatever, they, you know, they rely on the old and liberal ideas that they sometimes have and it just doesn't work. Now, I know there are some people out there, uh, various immigration refugee activists who would counter and say, well, that's just the nature of geography. And of course, there's those those upward pressures that uh, Southern European countries feel at their border. They've had border crises and they say, well, Canada and the United States, you're doing well with your immigration because you're selecting people by economic criteria. Uh, you're bringing in people who you already know are going to be pretty successful. Uh, you need to go and, and, and you need to do your fair share and bring in much more refugees and so forth. You, you need to help out and take some of those people who are in the queue uh, to enter Europe uh, through the border. I know I hear that a lot up here in Canada. W- what do you think about that idea? Well, I, I don't know what Canada's system's like, but in the United States, we've been a lot, we take refugees from all over the world. Uh, you know, there is, it's untrue that we're, I know that there's been a push for that sort of economic system, but uh, we allow, uh, you know, I mean, going back to the early, you know, to the 1800s, you have Irish immigrants coming in, certainly weren't poor Jewish immigrants, Italian immigrants, and later, um, from Central America and, and Mexico, you have a hu- you know huge immigration. I, I, I point this out in the book. You take any any people, any ethnic minority, any single one, from the Japanese who are the most successful here to whatever Nigerians, and they will always be better off here than elsewhere. There's a famous quote where this uh, economist told Milton Friedman, who was a you know classical liberal economist, uh, told him, you know, we have no poverty in Scandinavia. And he said, that's amazing. We have no Scandinavians who are poor in the United States either. You know, <laughs> we, we I, I, I would challenge anyone to show me which ethnic minority here does does worse here than they would at home. And it just doesn't exist. And it's not because we're just picking and choosing, you know, Nigerians who are the, the richest. I mean, Nigerians live on $1.90 a month, I think is the average. I might be a little bit off there, but when they come here, they, they make almost 100,000 per household. So, I think they do pretty well here. So you're saying we need to avoid adopting a lot of these ideas that have caused problems for these various European uh, countries, turning them into a dying continent. And yet when the American president, when the Canadian prime minister go and, and meet at these international gab fests, they're at the G7, they're at the G20, which has a whole lot of people from these countries. And then I guess there can be a little bit of a peer pressure uh, gang up where they say, no, no, these ideas are perfect. These are the ideas of the future. I mean, are, are we not just heavily exposed to the constant drumbeat of we got to do what they're doing? Yeah, we are. And again, I, you know, when I make this comparison, I'm comparing the United States to European nations. It's not to say European nations are, aren't wealthy and, and successful in their own ways right. compared to many other nations, obviously. And it's not to say that Europeans never have any good ideas. I mean, the, the, you know, most of our best ideas here in the United States are ideologically speaking and philosophically speaking come from Europe and have a tradition in Europe. And that's just how it is. It doesn't mean everyone can benefit from them, but they come from Europe. Um, the problem, I think, is, is that they've abandoned most of those classical liberal mm. ideas, frankly, and that's the problem. Um, and it's not to say that the president shouldn't go over there and say, hey, maybe they have a good idea. But when you really look at each um, cultural, economic, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, data point, you know, anything you can quantify. I mean, we, we beat them in almost every way. So I'm not I'm unsure why they're not asking us 
what they should be doing and why we're going over there. You know, that's an uh, interesting idea, though, bringing up how they've sort of jettisoned or abandoned their own traditional uh, European ideals from from several centuries ago, because, of course, you can still see and feel how American politics and, and civil society very much has those founding father ideas in them. I know there's it's hotly debated and, and there's always uh, a lot of drama over that and talk about the Second Amendment and so forth. Um, but but still, it, it seems to run through the American culture very, very vibrantly. Why is it that America has has held on to those values much more than Europe has held on? to the original values that gave them their initial uh, prosperity and strong bonds? Well, because they take them seriously. I would say this as a non-atheist, I think that the faith and the religi religious aspects of the United States, the competition in faith and the, and the serious way in which a lot of people still take it, uh, the belief that there's something bigger than yourself, certainly something bigger than the state, um, lends itself to taking documents that have, you know, foundational rights um, natural rights more seriously. Uh, anyone, everyone, uh, people have noted this, but you know, Stalin era <laughs> communist constitutions were great. You know, they had first amendments, second amendments, and all that, but no one really takes them seriously. But here we do, and I think that that's the difference. Now, obviously, you know, there are always specific fights you can have about those amendments and how they're supposed to be impl implemented. But in general, in the United States, we always agreed that. And free speech, uh, you know, so the right to self-defense, these things were quite important. I wouldn't say that I think that that's going in a different direction right now, but in general, I think that's why we take it more seriously. And when you do that, you don't turn to different sorts of uh, deities. For instance, you know, when you want to fill that void with fascism or communism or now this gigantic bureaucracy, uh, that just doesn't work out for human beings because, uh, there's really nothing to be found there. As I mentioned, no one's going to pick up a gun and defend the European Union. No, it's just an economic uh, conglomerate, you know. So, I mean, I, at least that's my theory on it. Speaking of global gab fests, we just had the COP26 uh, Global Climate Change Summit in Glasgow. Uh, lots of push always for, well, from our own Prime Minister Justin Trudeau for a global carbon tax now. I know Joe Biden's only beginning to just broker the possibilities of a, of a domestic carbon tax in the U.S. That would cost, I, I think, only a third of what ours currently costs our own residents. Uh, and yet I see in Europe, they're having a lot of energy problems because they really bet the farm on, well, on the wind farm. And they're finding that that doesn't always materialize, that, uh, uh, that renewable sources aren't always the best way to go. What's going on there with their energy policy? on Europe. And I understand that obviously Putin's saying, well, hey, I got energy. I can sell it to you now. And it just seems like the whole thing's a disaster waiting to happen. Well, one of the things that Europeans have done better is uh, their reliance on nuclear energy has helped hmm. them keep carbon emissions down in ways that uh, would be impossible otherwise. But then Germany abandoned basically their nuclear program and instead is now going to get oil and gas from Russia. So they have no business lecturing anyone about that. The French have done a better job and some other nations uh, have, have good programs as well. You can't have it, you know, windmills are not going to be enough you know, for you. But um, here's the thing. Americans like to talk about climate change, uh, you know, bills and all of this and look towards Europe. But Europeans pay massive taxes or what we would consider massive taxes on a gallon of gas. And they pay a ton. Their energy is super expensive, always is even before this spike, in a way that Americans would never accept. Even today, you know, you have a gallon of gas going for $4 and everyone's panicking in this country. I mean, it's the lifeblood of capitalism. People do not want to pay a lot of money for their energy. They want reliable and affordable energy. 
and the Europeans uh, are much more open to to paying more. They drive less. They, you know, there are other reasons why, but I just don't think that works here. Yeah, here in Canada, we have that sort of great landmass, and most of us live close to the U.S. border, so we can actually drive to another Canadian city or an American city within like 90 minutes or, or two hours, but we still can go long stretches without seeing anything. And I remember a number of years ago, I was driving through France, and you're like, oh, we, you know, we, we got to wait until the next town or what have you. And then there's like two fields, and you're like, oh, I'm in the next town already. It's kind of funny how like you're like, oh, yeah, this is not geographically dispersed. Like you just sort of get to the next community. Yeah, it's kind of easy to have a little car and whatever the price of gas is, so be it. It's the same thing with public transportation, like European cities have been around forever. And, and frankly, much of that continent was flattened after World War II, so they could rebuild in a different sort of way. But the idea that you could have just trains in, let's say, a place like Denver, where I'd lived for years, people love their cars because it gives them the freedom to go where they want. And you have a constantly growing community. It's very difficult to have mass transit in the way that uh, many progressives here want to simply because of the size of the, of the nation and the type of um, culture around cars that we have grown up with. So I think climate zealotry, if I can call it that, is definitely one of the things that, that uh, progressives in Canada and the U.S. would like us to mimic from Europe. What do you think are the other sort of top concerning issues? Like if you have to say to people, uh, look, here's my message. Here's one or two or three things that they're doing in Europe. They're saying we got to do here. Watch out, though. Beware. Don't touch these things. Well, I have to say my biggest concern, I think, is 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 building out the welfare state in the way that uh, Scandinavian nations have it. Obviously, scale to the United States, that would in- entail building massive bureaucracies that infringe on individual freedoms, but also worse, elbow out community in the way that we know it locally. So, um, you know, during COVID, you have the CDC essentially running the country, making laws, compelling people to act in certain ways. This is what happens in Europe. They're, these are not elected people. These are bureaucrats. Having bureaucrats run your country is, is dangerous. I think it inhibits the dynamism that you are used to, and competition, and the welfare state itself. Listen, I think there are poor people who need help, and there always will be, and we should do what we can. But when you start expanding the welfare state to everyone, like they do in Scandinavia, Scandinavian countries, that is, uh, you know, that's a completely different sort of uh, proposition. I think that it, that would make America. Listen, we we we. I keep saying listen. Sorry, but you are listening. But the the the, the United States, even if it became like Europe, would not become this. Uh, would not be Nazi Germany or something. It would still be a, a relatively free and rich country, but I think it would be a more insipid place. I think it would be less dynamic. I think the people would be less free to do the things they want to do. That's what concerns me more. It's not as if I think, you know, that Germany is the Germany of old or anything. I just think that it's un-American to try to transpose their culture and society on ours. You know, David, I got to tell you, before we go, one of the things that that frustrated me so much with with COVID in the past year and a half is that whenever we had a European country and Sweden was the main one that said, we're not doing the lockdowns, we're doing things differently. I'd always the number of times I was on a radio program and I'd rant and rave and say, everyone tells us we got to be more like Europe, particularly northern Europe, particularly like the like the socialist states. And then suddenly they're doing things like, oh, maybe we should try over here. And we know you can't talk about Sweden. And now we're seeing it more and more, all of them, Denmark, uh, Norway, Finland, just th- throw them all into the mix. They're all just saying like, no, we're not doing the COVID case counts anymore. We're not doing this and that. They've totally gone in a different direction. I just feel like I'm, I'm fully on board with the thesis of your book. I just feel like this is the one situation where I wish we could flip it over. It's like, why, why can't we talk about what they're doing? No, I think I think that's right. I, you know, I started writing this before COVID, and most of it was done before COVID, uh, so it was difficult to sort of weave that in. But you know, so so 
more general, don't be like Europe. But I noticed, yeah, Sweden, for instance, did not lock down its economy and it did better than most countries. And you know, I think all Europe, Europeans had very different reactions to this. So it's difficult to just uh, generalize about the whole continent. But you're right. They did things, I think, that we should be more interested in. And now you see the big protests in some of the countries, which actually surprised me. I mean, Europeans typically don't do that sort of thing when it comes, they do it when they're part of a union and don't want to work, but they usually don't do it for their personal freedom. So um, I'm a little taken aback by that. I don't think that the general trends change, but there is maybe something going on there, I hope. Are you optimistic that we're going to make the right choice, that things are going to go in the right direction and, and Europe, to your point, may actually say, yeah, maybe we should pay attention to what the U.S. is doing more. Or do you think that this is a bit of an inexorable decline? Absolutely. I, I, I do think it is. Uh, I am not, uh, I'm completely pessimistic about the future in that sense. I I think that uh, right now in the United States, you have the left, which has gone far more progressive, that, that is trying to create, grow, grow what I view as a welfare state. But you also have the right or, or parts of the right here that are increasingly open to illiberal ideas about the world that look to Hungary and other places in Eastern Europe as as uh, examples of what we should be doing. So that all bothers me. Basically, I think if government's doing something, it's probably wrong, which is why I'm a big fan of gridlock. <laughs> the book is Euro Trash, Why America Must Reject the Failed Ideas of a Dying Continent, the latest book by David Harsani. David, thanks so much for joining us today. Really great conversation. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.